Wow, so um, this ends today almost six months in the Minor Prophets. And when I come to teach, I'm reminded, you know, I'm, my day job is as a, like Dennis's and, and Mike is, is as a university teacher. And, you know, I get an hour and ten minutes or three hours in my classes to unpack things, you know. And, and uh, never mind that, my, my strengths finder, if those of you who have taken the strengths finder test, I am the strength, my, my top one is always connectedness, which means I'm always seeing all the connections. You know, I just explode with implications and ideas and, you know, when I read a passage. Yeah. And so then I step into this Anglican, you know, preaching spot where you have 25 minutes, right? I mean, it's like trying to exercise in a phone booth when it comes to <laughs> me, you know. I mean, I just, uh, it's agonizing. So I, um, I'm just kind of just wanting some sympathy or something. Um, it's like Mark Twain said, you know, he said, uh, some, a magazine asked him for a 500-word article. And he said, well, I can give you a 1,000 words on Friday, but you'll have to wait till Monday if you want 500. Um, that's kind of how I'm feeling. So there's a lot here in, in Malachi 3 and 4. Um, and I, it's been a long run, right, with the Minor Prophets. I mean, it's, I must say, being out there week after week, wondering, are you talking to me, Lord, when you're talking about idolatry? or the neglect of the weak and the defenseless? Are you talking to me when you talk about the sins of injustice or of those who run away from you? So there's been kind of a steady pounding for the last six months. And coming to this passage today, it's, it's very nice to read the opening lines of our passage, verse six of chapter three, if you have it with you, where the Lord says, I, the Lord, do not change. This is not a, a statement about God's total person, necessarily. God changes his mind in the scriptures. He reverses actions he took. You know, it's a statement, though, about his attitude toward the covenant he established. And he says, you know, when it comes to the covenant with you, that I'm to be your God and you're to be my people, fortunately for you, that doesn't change. So you and I awake every morning into the covenant. We awake into his steadfast love, the assurance that he will be our God and the invitation again to be his people. And so as this passage says, we are not consumed by his anger. I know two people who once, when they were married, engraved on the inside of their wedding ring the phrase, a deal's a deal. In plain terms, that's how God sees the covenant. A deal's a deal. And it's an incredible deal for us, in which basically he does all the work, right? Creation, the calling of a people out, liberation from Egypt, laying out ways of life for us that lead to life, speaking truth to power, becoming Emmanuel, God with us, teaching us in human flesh, Suffering as we do and worse. Rising and sending the Spirit so he can love us from the inside. I mean, this covenant is just one big story of God giving life to us and then doing all he can to get us to accept life from him. So in the opening words of Micah in chapter one, 
God says, I have loved you. I have always loved you. And so return to me. And so throughout the Minor Prophets, if you've been walking with us these last six months, you've seen that God has postured himself sometimes as the jilted lover in this relationship, as the loving father toward wayward children, as the God of the sky and sea that will go to extraordinary means to call a prophet, if even through a fish, back to himself. Because for him and his love, a deal's a deal. It's harder for us, though, isn't it? It's harder for us, the covenant. Um, and there are many reasons why. Why do we wander so much? Well, you know, I, I think in part it's because God's laws and how we've seen them embodied in Jesus. You know, at regular points, it does bring us to these little deaths. Following God brings us to these little deaths on the way to rising in life. There are small losings of ourself, as Jesus said, if we're going to find life. Small losings of life to find it. There's a, a pastoral rhythm, a dying and rising rhythm to following the commands of God. We have to loosen our holds to find life, whether it's the giving of our money or tithe, a defense of someone else who's vulnerable, a resisting or calling out of unjust practices, if it's the humility of forgiveness, there's often just little death, deaths on the way in these commands. And sometimes those little deaths raise questions for us, right, deep in our hearts. Is this really worth it for me to go through this little death? Is there really life on offer? Well, that cuts right to today's passage, right? God comes to the Israelites through Malachi, and he says, you know, you have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. And yet you ask, what have we said against you? And by the way, this is how Malachi goes. It's structured this way where God makes a claim, they ask a question, God explains the case. So he says, you've spoken arrogantly against me. And then the Lord says then, what you say is, what have we said against you? And the Lord says, this is what you said. It's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? He says, in fact, what you say is you look at the arrogant and you call them blessed, not yourself. And certainly evildoers prosper. Even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. So the Lord is kind of voicing this complaint they have. And in another translation, it's put even more starkly, it's the question, what is the profit of keeping God's commands? What a good is it? See, Malachi's audience has grown cynical. Um, we don't know the circumstances precisely, but we know that it's probably roughly 100 years since they were released from captivity by King Cyrus, the Persian. So they moved from kind of Babylonian to Persian rule. And he released them to go back to Judea under his rule. And it's probably about 70 years since they got to rebuild the temple, the second temple, a couple of generations under the Persian king Darius. And so there was a great longed-for excitement about a return to the land and a building of the temple. But that's been a while now. And they've come into ordinary time. The daily, weekly obedience 
worship, walking in God's ways, the giving of tithes that supported the temple and the poor. They've seen the Edomites who don't know God, they've seen them really recover. And, and, and they, they begin to ask, what is, again is the point of following your commands? What profit is this? I think that question sometimes, if we're honest, rolls around in our hearts somewhere. It might be because life has been very, very hard lately. And like the psalmist of Psalm 88, we say, Lord, have you forgotten me? I mean, here I am, I'm serving you, I'm trying to do the daily things, but I don't know if I'm seeing the profit of this in my life. Well, whatever the actual circumstances, the the audience has grown cynical in Malachi's time. I got a call from a student this week. I haven't seen her for three years, but when she was at Biola, we talked kind of regularly. And suddenly she calls me out of the blue from New Hampshire, and she's struggling. Her uh, parents have long been separated. Her mother and brother have long struggled to make ends meet in Los Angeles. Her father has been minimally involved in her life, her whole life. She feels the burden and responsibility of supporting her mother and brother, although she is barely making it, having been led into a career that she thought God was calling her to, but that now seems like a dead end. And on the phone she said to me, you know, I've been a Christian for seven years, and I don't know why anymore. It's almost as if she's saying, what has been the good of it? Um, And it seems like a self-centered question, right? But it's a real question. Especially since the Lord does from time to time say, blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. You know, people will admire that life. Or when Jesus says, you know, I say these things to give you joy, my joy. So in a sense in which there is an expectation that, yes, this obedience should result in some kind of tangible life palpable life. Now, some people, by the way, take this passage as kind of an argument for the prosperity gospel, which we don't have time to talk about, but it's not, that's not right. But at least there is the expectation that God will provide some life for his people, some blessedness that will meet their needs. And so we probably know people who have deep complaints about this, maybe ourselves. What is, what is the good again of this? Because I'm not experiencing it. Well, that is the question. What do we do with our weakness? What do we do with our cynicism? What do we do with our complaints? What do we do with our discouragement? I was reading a poem by Marie Howe, and she says, the mystics say you are as close as my own breath, but why do I flee from you? My days and nights pour through me like complaints. My days and nights pour through me like complaints. And for some, this is a real problem. And so the Lord goes on in the passage here and says, return to me. Still the call to return to him, even amid this confusion, these complaints. And the people somewhat defiantly here ask, well, how are we to return? I mean, amid all of this, how do we find life? How do we return to the covenant? 
And God responds with a pretty simple, practical way. And he says, here's a command, obey it. That's how you return. In this particular case, it's the command of tithing to the temple, which supported the lives of the priests, of course, which supported the life of the community, and actually also supported the poor. You know, Dallard, in, in Dallard Willard lore, there's this, you know, Dallas Willard lore, there's this uh, story that a church asked Dallas, you know, they'd heard all his spiritual formation stuff, and they were like, you know, okay, well, how do we embody this in, in church? How do we grow spiritually in our church? You know, we got a church of people here. Tell us how to do it. Let's, let's do it. And so he says, okay, I want you to get in small groups, and I want each group to take a single command, and I want you to try and obey it. And the idea here was, you know, when you start to try and obey one command, you know, like, you know, love your spouse, if that's your situation, love your spouse. You know, it's not as easy as going, I mean, you think it's, I'll just go buy some candy and flowers if it's, you know, if it's someone who likes candy and flowers or I'll, you know, do something. And, but then you realize, wow, you hit some levels where, you know, I don't really actually want to buy candy and flowers. So now you hit this another level of the will, and then, and then like, I, you know, I, this, frankly, I'm angry about some things. You know, buying flowers, mm, no, actually, I'm angry about something. Well, it, the command just kind of takes you down into your will, into questions about, am I really, what, what profit, frankly, is this to me? So that's kind of how this works. The call to return to me here that the prophet gives is a call to a particular command. And when we receive that particular command into our lives, as you've been receiving commands for six months from the prophets, you know, it's going to take you down into your will and desire. If you're honest, you're going to have to say, do I really want to obey this? Now, obedience is non-negotiable in the Christian life. You and I, we lead with the body, no matter what the heart feels. Ah, but you know what? As we lead with the body, we open the heart. And when we open the heart, sometimes we find, you know, I don't really want to do this. In fact, it kind of names our inner resistance. In other words, if you were to, for instance, you know, tithing is a subject here. And two things are gonna happen when you, when you start moving toward obeying that command. One is, when you write that check, you're gonna be like, I love doing this. I love giving money. Money is the root of all evil, and I've just purged myself. No, you may not say that. No, I love giving to a church because I love what's happening. I love the life and the place I can come for care and where I can hear the word of God and experience the Eucharist. I love giving. You may experience that. And you can just praise the Lord because it is in your heart. The command is in your heart. Here's the other thing you may experience. Wow, that was painful. In fact, it's so painful, I don't know if I can just do that again. And so now what what we discover is, well, you know, it's not in my heart. <laughs> and so that takes us to a deeper place. It takes us to a place of honesty, and that is so good. That is so good. In the midst of our obedience, what we do is we open the heart and we come to God honestly and we tell him the situation of our hearts. Here in Molokai, God had to go to them and tell them the situation of their hearts. <laughs> you guys in your hearts are asking, what good is following God? So God had to kind of reach in and say, let's pull this on the table because that's what's going on here. 
So good for us, though, to let a command reveal what's in our heart, bring it to God and say, Lord, I am going to write the check, but look, I want to become someone who does this with joy. So, Lord, let's work with this. So the command as we open the heart leverages the truth of ourselves. And we pray in Psalm 139, Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. And you know, in that process which sounds hard, you know what will develop is intimacy with God. You'll be able to come before him in honest prayer. I cannot tell you how important honest prayer is to our healing, to our sanctification. So the command received as a way to return him first brings us to a state of honesty about that particular command. But you know, in our passage, it can raise a whole bunch of other issues about our relationship to God, right? We're told in this passage that there were those who were God-fearers. And we're told in verse 16, those who feared the Lord talked with each other. (laughs) They kind of heard the prophecy, they heard the commands, and they kind of got together and they talked with each other. I would love to know what they talked about. There was kind of a regrouping, a kind of conferral, a kind of meeting. And we're just told that the Lord heard that and listened, and wrote their names in what is called a scroll of remembrance. But it had something to do with fearing the Lord. These people got together and they thought, you know, we really, we really need to return. And we're told that these people fear the Lord. And you know, this is always a hard, hard thing to grasp. And people are very quick to say, well, you know, it's not craven fear, it's reverence. And you know, that's good so far as it goes, but I've always had a hard time grasping that. Okay, it's reverence. Like, what? What is the fear of the Lord? And it's notoriously hard to describe. It's one of those things I guess one has to experience. But you know, the way I've kind of grabbed it is kind of backwards in the rearview mirror of regret. Regret, of course, is that horrible feeling that what you have done or have been doing now reveals to you at some point in time how wrong a road that was, how wasteful that time was, or how much your actions hurt someone else. That horrible feeling of regret where you look back and go, oh my gosh. Where you were just like in your life, daily life, you're like two degrees off every day. Some attachment, some addiction, some way that you would have your way two degrees off. And you know, you're looking back now, five, 10, 15 years, and you realize that two degrees off has put you 2,000 miles from where you now see that you want to be. It suddenly revealed that you've gotten lost. And people talk about lost or wasted years. This is the middle-aged man or woman who suddenly gets to a point where they see that their pursuit of success has distracted them from relationships or where their pursuits turned out to be empty. It's that proverbial ladder where you climb up and you realize it was leaning against the wrong wall. And there you are. And it's like you would give anything for a second chance. You'd give anything to go back and do it right because now you see what's really worth doing. Now you see kind of the values. In fact, our word worship comes from the word worth. Now you see what what you really should have been worshiping that whole time. That horrible feeling of regret. And you say, you know, if I were to go back and do it, I would just cling to this path. I would just cling to this right path. And I would just cling to God. For fear that I just do not want to go off this path because this is so good. This would have been so beautiful. that I just, I, I wouldn't want to have left that path. 
That is the fear of God. It is that clinging to the good and the beautiful. You say, I I don't want to go outside that. It's not just that it's dangerous, it's just that it's empty. I now see what is truly valuable. It's almost this feeling of, 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 a, of, of a giant cosmic FOMO. <laughs> I, I fear of missing out. Oh, I don't want to miss out on the true, the good, and the beautiful. So sometimes the obeying of a single command can not only show you the truth of your heart into that command, but can make you ask, you know, is this whole thing worth it? And it takes you into this question, what would life be without God? Am I really in the covenant? Do I really want to be in the covenant? And many of us would say, oh my gosh. You know, I had friends who, who, whose marriage was struggling and they went in for their first appointment with a pastor. And the first thing the pastor said was, well, have you considered divorce? I thought, wow, why would that person say that? Right away, I mean, this is just the beginning. And you know, it turned out to be a very wise thing. Because they're like, oh my gosh, no. We're not at that point, we can't imagine that yet. That would be life outside of a covenant. We can't even deal with that. And it was almost that that imagination that at this stage in their lives, and I know that some of you have had to go through all of that, and wow. And I know that this is unavoidable in some cases. But in their case, faced with that, they go, no, no, no. We can't even imagine that at this point. We want to stay in. And so the prophet brings us to a place that says, you really want to even be in this covenant. And it will lead us back to the Lord. And say, oh no, I have a fear if I were to even consider that. And so the Lord's words to the people here in Malachi are saying, you know, I know you don't think it's worth it. And so he says this, he says, test it. Test it. Begin with the command. I know you, you're tired of the commands, but begin with a command. Let it provoke what is in your heart. Let it even take you to the thought of renewing the covenant. Let it give you a larger vision. What is that larger vision? Well, in this case, the vision of tithing, right? Tithing may seem like this, this little death, but, but God says, no, you know, test it, because, you know, this is really about something larger. It is about something that could create a community of worship. Where each week, as Beth said, we gather together to recollect ourselves. We're in a place where we get to hear the truth and let it linger in our hearts. We're in a place where there is care and prayer for our pain. It is literally where we get to taste and see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus' love. It's a place where we get to be reconciled to one another, a place where we get to learn and apprentice in serving those others even outside our church. It's a place where we meet our primary and fundamental need for relationship with God and with others. Let the single command not just be that, but to bloom into a vision. It's like, you know, the proverbial guy who's in the rock quarry and he's chipping away at rocks and somebody asks what are you doing and he says I'm building a cathedral here Malachi is saying you know 
follow this command. Because it is not just a death, but it is leading to life. You are building a cathedral in this. God has created us to be a link in a chain. And the prophet may not always be to us. It may be to others. In fact, it will be to others. And I love John Henry Newman's prayer in which perhaps asking in a time of discouragement, he says, God has created me to do some definite service. He has committed some work to me which has not been committed to another, some command, we might say, that's been committed to you. I have my mission. I may never know it in this life. Wow, that's hard to hear. It's like I may not ever see the cathedral built, but I am part of a tradition of goodness and beauty that will bless the ages. The prophet, after Malachi, there will be a relative silence for 400 years. And then the prophet John will come, and Jesus will come. I have my mission. I may not actually know where my good works and where my obedience will lead in the lives of others in this tradition but I will be told it in the next life. <laughs> I am a link in a chain. I am a bond of connection between persons. God has not created me for naught. I shall do good. Whatever, wherever I am, my obedience cannot be thrown away. Even if I'm sick, my sickness may serve the Lord. There are even commands when we are sick. Sometimes the commands are to wait. We can serve the Lord in perplexity. If I am in sorrow, my sorrow may serve the Lord. God does nothing in vain. We might say there is no command in vain. In ordinary time, it is building a cathedral. Therefore, says Newman, I will trust in the Lord. So I just invite you this morning uh, to practice uh, what Willard recommended. What is the one command this morning that's for you? It may have been tracking you for a while. It may have been like a ghost haunting you. Some command, something the Lord's asking you to do or has been asking you to do. It could be quite active. It could be quite apparently passive. Something like let go of. Wow, that's a hard one. Or it could be receive this. And let that command Open your heart to the Lord in candid conversation, in need. Let your will and desire be open to him. Let him take you to a place where if you're doubting kind of the whole deal, bring you to a place where you say, no, I, I do. I want to be in this covenant with you. And then let that command restore a vision of even what it is for. The good it will do, the life it will bring, in this passage, the healing that will be risen in wings and the reconciliation. A deal's a deal. And it's so much in our favor. May we respond this morning by renewing our covenant with him.